You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave, like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only the fuel for fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities, and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak, Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Technology can be a a great blessing, uh, but it can also be probably a source of some of our greatest irritation and aggravation. Uh, On the one hand, it's great to have information at your fingertips, um, 
to be able to Zoom with family and friends who are far away. Uh, but it can also be quite irritating in that our constant use of technology has revealed something about the growing lack of patience in our culture. Uh, we are people who lack patience. Uh, in a recent survey they did among Americans, they found that when going to Netflix or Amazon to watch a movie, uh, people grow impatient after six seconds. Uh, they're a little more patient with web pages. They will give up to 10 to 15 seconds for a page to load before they're out of there. And as well, that over 50% of Americans, if they're put on hold for more than a minute, will hang up. And if anyone's gone to the store, you know now you have self-express checkout. So if you're troubled that you spend too much time in the store, you have no one to blame but yourself because you took too long to check out. But those implications that we live in a very impatient culture and society are not without spiritual ramifications. In other words, they find their way making ourselves into our own life and relationship with God. In a world where we crave instant gratification and expect everything to be like Twitter where we get an immediate response, how can you learn to wait on God and be content with waiting. Now, so I direct you to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, this morning. And we're picking up with God's response to Habakkuk's second question or complaint. Uh, and a quick review, his first question dealt with the fact, looking at his circumstances, he was, God, how long is this going to go on? Uh, the people of Israel were struggling. Evil was victorious around them. God was going to judge his people. But Habakkuk asked, how long and why? And God responded to that question. But then Habakkuk had a follow-up question, and that had to do with, is God unjust? Is it just for God to judge us with another nation who is more wicked than we are? And the reference is to the Babylonians that God's going to bring in. So it's that second question. Is God unjust? That the Lord replies now in chapter 2, verse 2, through the end of chapter 2. And so we're going to look at this in terms of two claims, two truth statements that are made. The first has to do with the fact that God's justice is always right. God's justice is always right. And the second truth claim is going to be that God's timing is always perfect. So God's timing is always perfect. God's justice is always right. And if we can come away from this passage with a knowledge of that, that will answer the question, how can you wait on God? So let's go to the first truth claim here that the justice of God, that God's justice is always right. And notice verse 2. It says, then the Lord replied. Now, replied's an intriguing word because you could read it as the Lord reacted. Uh, because the, the word can be used not just for what verbally is stated, but also for one's response, non-verbally. In other words, you can, the phrase can be translated, the Lord turned his countenance 
toward Habakkuk. A gracious, a loving God who responds to our cries for help, for clarity, for wisdom in a world filled with uncertainty, in a world filled with many, many injustices. So the Lord reacts. He responds. But what follows in verses 2 through 4 is the Lord's answer to Habakkuk's question. And the answer is meant to be memorable and repeated. The answer is couched in such a way that it's intended to be remembered by not just Habakkuk, but by the people he takes it to. And it's also intended to be repeated. And so let's take a look at that. You notice in this section, it says, for the revelation, or excuse me, let me back up to verse 2. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And then if you go down to verse 6, you notice he uses the word taunt. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? And then the next word you see in verse 6 is woe. And if you probably looked quickly, you noticed, oh, that comes up again in verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, and verse 19. The reason I point that out is all of those are literary devices used to make this a memorable message. In other words, you have a combination of two devices that many of the prophets use. One is referred to as a woe oracle, where God says to the prophet, here you need to go and announce these judicial punishments to my people. And in this case, these woe oracles are directed to Babylon. So God will bring Babylon in to discipline and chastise his people because they're not listening to him. They will become God's teacher of his people. But when all is said and done, then God will turn around and fulfill these woe oracles on Babylon. So in this literary device to make it so you don't forget what's being talked about, you have woe oracles. Then you also have in the middle of that woven in are taunt. A taunt song is something that typically a military army did to, to basically mock or ridicule those they have defeated. And, and often setting it to music, so it was a form of rejoicing, celebration, and historically marks an event that would be sung about over and over again. So God responds to this with both woe oracles and a taunt song, so this would be a message that would not be forgotten. Because you notice again in verse 2, the wording there and the instructions that come with this. Write it down. Now, we don't want to think of the people of Israel as, as primitive or cave people. They have an alphabet, 22 letters. They can communicate. They can write things down. And so, not unlike other prophets, this message is to be written down. But then it's interesting. It goes on and says, make it plain. In other words, take this message and record it in such a way that is, is intended for all 
to hear this. Make it clear. You find the same wording used of Moses toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy when the people of Israel are being prepared to go into the promised land under Joshua. It tell, God tells Moses to write the law down clearly, plainly. And so you come to worship anticipating, I would hope, that you would hear a plain and clear message. It would not be good for you or for me if you left church and were like, I really don't know what Pastor Kevin was talking about this morning. I have no idea what he was saying. So write the message down, make it plain, and then make it plain on tablets. So here you have technology before Bill Gates. Not those kind of tablets. Uh, but, but typically, messages could be written down on stone, metal, or wood tablets. And the purpose of that was not to write it down and hide it, but to display it at a place where people would see it. Because notice the next phrase in verse 2. Do all this so that a herald may run with it. ESV has so that he may run with it. And the interpretive question here, which doesn't change the significance of God's justice always being right, would be, is this referring more to a prophetic activity, like write it down and then you take it and you as a prophet run throughout and communicate this? Or was God saying, you take it, you write it down in a public place and whoever goes by and sees this reads it plainly, understands it, and they take it and share it with others. And I tend to lean toward the latter view, that this is a message to not just be to Habakkuk, but to the people of Israel as they found themselves living where they would soon see the Babylonians come in. And it would look like, where is the justice of God? Where, where is God in all this? And that continual question that we find people even asking today as Christians, how long? How long are we going to have to wear masks? How long is COVID going to last? How long until the next resurgence and spike of the virus? How long? When we're actually we're saying that and questioning, we're kind of raising the issue, God, is this, is this just? Is your justice always right? And so we go back to this message that God gives to Habakkuk. Take it, write it down, make it clear, put it, and then run with it. So those are the instructions, but the revelation of the message is elaborated on further in verses 6 through 20. So in other words, you could look at this and say God responds in verses 1 through 4. His justice is always right. But verses 6 through 20 expand now on how that looks on a ground level with the Babylonians coming in. And so as I mentioned, verses 6 through 20, you have five woe oracles. You have a description of divine justice, of God's retributive justice where he punishes the wicked. And as you look at that, all I want to point out is that Based on what God said earlier and that Habakkuk confirmed that God is holy, 
that would mean then that since God is holy, whatever God wills is just and good. Because he can't have a holy nature and then will or do something that is not just or right or true. And so you could, on your own, look up history and see how accurate these woes are to the Babylonian Empire in terms of what, what drove it and what happened to it. Because as we said earlier in our initial study of this book, they would not have been anticipating that Babylon would rise so quickly to be such a superpower. And as shocking as that would be, the flip side is history tells us as quick as they rose to power, within 20 years, they're gone. They're like a little blip on the historical horizon. So they rise to power quickly because God raised them up. But when God's justice is executed, they're gone. And so notice in this description of their woes, verses 6 through 8 give you the first woe. And it's, it's all based upon they will be punished for their theft, their embezzlement, and their oppression. Then you look at the second well, verses 9 through 11. Their, their dishonest gain, their false security. When it says they tried to set their nest on high, in, in other words, to, to make themselves secure as a nation, as a people, that that will all be fruitless. But in the process, that is what they will attempt to do. And they will work by deception. They plot ruin and evil. Very deliberate. Nebuchadnezzar was a, a brilliant strategist and builder. Not so much known as like a military genius, but more a tremendous builder. And how he, he recruited and, and exported and deported people to, to secure himself a name. Those of you who are old enough may remember when Saddam Hussein was in power uh, in the Middle East. He made the comment that he wanted to restore Baghdad to the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. Tremendous glory that marked Babylon in ancient times, which is present-day Baghdad. And so we see these woes announced of this nation that looks so great and powerful is only there to complete God's work in his people. Notice the third woe, verses 12 through 13, speak of they will be judged for their violence, their mistreatment, and their evil. And throughout these woes, you see this principle of retaliation. But because God's justice is perfect, this is not mere just striking them in revenge. It is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You have done this to my people. Now, this is what you will experience. The fourth woe is in verses 15 through 17, speaks of oppression and mistreatment of others. And I can't help but think as you hear those terms, what is it that seems to be absorbing the attention of our world today? COVID, but certainly racial tensions and issues. And we're not to peddle a social gospel that just says, you know, we need to make this world better. 
But we realize, what's at the root of all that? Isn't the root of all that rebellion against God? Denying that we're all made in the image of God? Isn't it fascinating but yet very troubling that as our world drifts further and further away from wanting to believe in God, it then wonders why we don't treat each other better? Aren't those connected? Didn't Jesus even say that when he said, you can take all the, the law and the prophets, you can sum them up into two commands. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you can't do one without the first one being in place. But then you get to the fifth woe in verses 18 and 19. Structured somewhat differently because the announcement really doesn't come in until verse 19. But it's a woe to those who look to other gods. Idolatry. And we're, we all know enough to realize idolatry isn't just making a physical graven image and worshiping that. That was certainly true of what the Babylonians did. They had their gods that they worshiped. We know earlier in Habakkuk, it says that the people of Babylon will will praise those gods, thinking those gods were responsible for their rise to power. But we know that an idol is anything you put in the place of God in your life and in your heart. God's justice is always right. And so as he will execute that against Babylon, he is just as just to judge their sins as he was to judge the sins of the people of Israel. He is just as just when he judges your sins and my sins and disciplines us and corrects us. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2 to see Paul bringing this principle out in his discussion with Jews and Gentiles. You get to Romans chapter 2 and, and Paul is beginning to shift his focus a little bit to say, not just are Gentiles sinners, but if you don't know Christ and you're Jewish, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, you're a sinner. And so you look at Romans chapter 2, and as Paul's making this argument, notice what he says in verses 1 and 2, and then we'll go to verses 9 through 11. Verses 1 and 2, Paul says, You, therefore, have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Some translations have there is based, um, I think, on facts or isn't based on what is true. What it's telling us here is God's justice is always right. Because his judgment is based on the heart. His judgment is, is based on the facts. God knows all. Then you go down to verses 9 through 11, and he continues and says, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. 
You could render that phrase, God does not show favoritism, that there's no glory of the face before God. In other words, he's, he's not impressed by, by physical features. He's not impressed by external circumstances or the things you do externally. He, he judges according to truth. He judges according to the heart. No wonder God's justice, his response to sin is always right. His response to righteousness is always right. And so God's judgment is always correct. Habakkuk needed to hear that because that's not what his world looked like. And in fact, it was not what the world he was in would look like for a while. And I would argue that's where we often are. It's not what our world looks like. Does it look like God's justice is always right when we look around us? Doesn't evil prosper? Don't some of the meanest people maybe in your workplace get the promotions and you don't? They climb the ladder and you're left behind? And we see people who reject Christ and they live long lives here on earth. But God's justice is always right. But the second truth claim we see in Habakkuk is that God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. Because woven within these woe oracles and this taunt song directed at Babylon's judgment, which, again, keep in mind, will not happen for quite some time. Because the people will first be carted off into exile, then they will be there for 70 years. This isn't an instantaneous, God said this, bam, it happened. But God's timing is always right. And woven within these woe and taunt oracles, you have two affirmations of praise. Notice verse 14. You have, in chapter 2, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a reminder to the people that God knows what he's doing. God's faithful to his promises. And we can see in one sense, yes, they will come out of the Babylonian exile. They will be able to rejoin, be gathered together. But yet the full fulfillment of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God remains before you and me. We're still looking for that ultimate completion of that. But that's the first affirmation of praise that kind of in the middle of all this says God's timing is always perfect. His plan. And then notice the second affirmation that we see in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And that comes right after verses 18 and 19, which were all about the nature of idols. What is an idol? It's something you made. And how absurd to take something you made and then bow down to it. And contrast that with the Lord God who is in the heavens on his throne and says that all the earth be silent before him 
The thought of silence here is in reverence, awe of both his judgment and his justice. And so when you think of God's justice, it is both how he punishes, but also how he rewards and blesses those who are righteous and follow him. But you have a clear definition of what faith looks like in terms of this. And notice in Habakkuk 2, in verse 4, speaking of Babylon, it says, See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright. And then contrast that with, but the righteous will live by his faith, or the righteous will live by faith. Now, it's that last part of verse 4 that is important as we think of what does that mean then? In light of God's justice, in light of God's timing, that the righteous live differently than the unrighteous. And it's not referring to mere, merely conduct, that we behave ourselves differently, but when we live in a whole different state, not just physically, but spiritually. This verse is quoted three other times in the New Testament. Twice by Paul in Romans and Galatians is quoted in reference to your right standing before God is by faith alone. Your right before God, not based on the law, but on what Christ has done for you. But if you were to look at Hebrews 10, that's the third place this verse is quoted in the New Testament. There it's quoted in reference to we can persevere in the faith. And that is what we do as Christians. We, we live in a world that is uncertain. We live in a world where injustice at times reigns and rules. But we live by faith in the certainty of these two truth claims about God's justice always being right and God's timing always being perfect. Because you notice that it goes on... <clears throat> in this passage where it speaks about how the fact that this message, if you go back to verse 3, is for appointed time, in other words, God's appointed time, perfect timing, when Babylon will fall, though it linger, wait for it. What does that tell you? Though it linger. From our perspective, <clears throat> does it ever look like God is moving too slow? Or not at all. That it will appear that way. And God's saying to Habakkuk, it's going to appear that there's some kind of delay here. But remember, the righteous live by faith. And though it linger, then you have it. Wait for it. Trust me. Because it certainly will come about. In other words, God is never too early and he's never too late. He's always right on time. And that sort of brings us to the question, where in your life is God maybe asking you to wait on him? We're saying you need to wait on me. You need to trust in my justice, in my timing. 
And I think Habakkuk reminds us, waiting does not mean you are spiritually passive. Because remember what Habakkuk said in the beginning of chapter 2, I will go and stand. I will be spiritually alert and prepared, but I will wait for the Lord. And so in a world that craves instant gratification, may we learn what it means, not just to wait upon God, but why you can and should wait upon him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, not just your people centuries ago needed to hear this, but we need to hear this in the world that you have put us in today. And so I pray that we would become a people who know what it means to wait upon God because the outcome is certain. In your name, amen.